<clears throat> Amen. If you have a Bible, would you turn to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 9 through 14 in a moment. If you're using one of the few Bibles, you're on page 983, if that helps, get you where you need to go. Last week, I asked you to consider your aspirations and ask you the question, you know, what, what is your ambition or what are your ambitions? And maybe it's because I was kind of sensitive to that topic, having discussed it last week, but I think it's rather ironic that for me, this week, I've had several experiences where that subject kind of kept coming up over and over again. I had an opportunity to speak with a couple of college students individually this week where they were sharing with me their educational and vocational ambitions. I chaperoned a field trip this week for Lindsay's 11th grade anatomy class. Uh, They went to the College of Medicine. uh, And uh, I had five or six uh, 16-year-old girls in my car. That's quite an experience. Um, The 30-minute drive there and back from the school. But in the car, as they were kind of talking, they were sharing their uh, aspirations for the kind of car they want to drive. And 16-year-old girls have aspirations for the, for, the, for the car they want to drive now, and then they have aspirations for the car they want to drive like in the future when they really make it. So I heard all about makes and models and colors and amenities and features and so forth. They were sharing also about their aspirations of places that they want to visit and, of course, careers they want to pursue. Uh, it was interesting that on that trip to the medical school, I had a chance to consider once again aspirations from long ago when I wanted to be a doctor and going into the anatomy lab and seeing the various specimens and taking a lab practical, which is like a test that, where things are labeled and you have to kind of identify. I did actually pretty good. I got 13 out of 14 right. I was so impressed with myself. <laughs> and going through this, uh, the, the experience of the anatomy stuff that the kids were there to learn and going into the clinical labs and, and seeing them role play doctor kind of brought back some of those old feelings, you know of wanting to one day, a long time ago, be a doctor, and how God changed those ambitions. I, it's funny, Dr. Mulrooney, who's the assistant dean, one of the assistant deans there, and his daughter, is a, a, one of Lindsay's friends, was in the class on the field trip, asked me at the end of the day, so did it bring back all those old feelings? Do you, do you, wish you, missed, do you think you missed out somehow? Do you think you would have wanted to be a doctor? And I said, you know what? I'm really glad to be where I am. I really believe that I'm doing what God wants me to do. I can't imagine myself doing anything else. Uh, I think the Lord directs me in the right path. So I was thinking about my own ambitions and how God had, had changed those at a moment of time and has, has allowed me to live out new ambitions he's given to me. Well, we all have some aspirations, aspirations of some sort. And what became even more pressing to me this week in kind of thinking through my own experiences and reflecting on past ambitions and hearing other people share their ambitions, the most pressing question to me this week is, do we have the right ambitions? Do we have the right aspirations? If we are followers of Jesus Christ, then inevitably Jesus should and Jesus must change our aspirations. Our ambitions must be filtered through his character and his will. 
As followers of Jesus, we must not only allow the Holy Spirit to shape our ambitions, but we must make them central to all of life, to all that we are and do. And the Bible points out to us what these new aspirations ought to be, and it challenges us, it exhorts us to apprehend these new ambitions as our own. So they are goals, they are, they are dreams, they are aims of ours, but they just can't kind of lay out there in the ether. We have to grasp that and we have to apprehend them. We have to actually move toward them and see them lived out in our lives. Well, Paul's prayer for the Colossians in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, as we saw in part last week, lays out a paradigm of distinctly Christian aspirations for the church. Paul acknowledges certain attributes and behaviors among the Colossians. For example, their faith and their love as worthy of praise and continued practice. But as we move into verses 9 through 14, we also see that Paul prays for the Colossians to continue to advance in distinctly Christian pursuits. There are more things that they have not yet apprehended that they need to apprehend, like increasing in the knowledge of God's will and then doing that will for the glory of God. These are the better things that the Colossians have been about and that they should continue to be about. But these aspirations, of course, are not limited to this church at this time in history. These aspirations are also ours. They are our aspirations. They are applicable to our own lives as we sit here in 21st century America. Last week we began studying this prayer, verses 3 through 14, as we saw last week, is one self-contained unit. And we started to look at the first part of that, verses 3 through 8, the, the section of thanksgiving. And what I want to do today is to finish out this passage and uncover what some of these distinctly Christian aspirations are so that we can pursue them and apprehend them as God has revealed them to us. So if you'll look in your Bible, again, I want to read the whole passage because it it just gives us some context. So I want to start in verse 3 and read down through verse 14. Paul writes, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So as we noticed last week, and just again to give us some context, this prayer is in two parts. The first part, verses 3 through 8, is the thanksgiving in which Paul is thanking God for the faith and love that is evident in the Colossian believers because of the heavenly hope that is at work in them, their relationship with Christ that has come to them through the gospel. We spent an extraordinary amount of time last week looking at that, so if you weren't here, I just would point you uh, to the messages on the website. The second part, where we're going to focus on today, is verses 9 through 14. This is the supplication. 
This is the part where Paul is making specific requests to God for the Colossians. He is asking God, he's beseeching God to do certain things for this church. So in this passage, we're going to see that Paul makes a request. He states the purpose for that request. He considers the means to see that purpose come to reality. And he addresses the attitude behind fulfilling that purpose. So the outline, just to give you four key words for the outline this morning, it's request, purpose, means, and attitude. Request, purpose, means, and attitude. So let's look at the first of those, which is the request. Paul makes a request, and that request is for a full knowledge of God's will. Now, if we were to read this, this paragraph in Greek, we would see that really Paul is making one request. Based upon the ESV translation I'm using, it might look like there's actually two or three requests that are in there. But actually, in the Greek syntax, the Greek sentence, Paul is making one request, and the rest of the prayer elaborates on that request. Paul's request is that the Colossians might be filled with the knowledge of God's will. He prays that they might fully know the will of God. Now, what is the will of God? Well, in this context, the will of God is the sum total of God's desires and expectations and purposes. It is what God has established in His mind and what He has ordained to be accomplished With regard to his people, God's will is what he desires his people to be and to do in light of who he is. So Paul is praying here that the Colossians would know God's mind, particularly what he would have them to be and to do as they live life on earth before him. Paul implies that knowing the will of God is a critical part of the Christian life. And he prays that God would give his people the knowledge of how they are to live in a way that pleases him. Well, how is it that we come to know God's will? And this is the most beautiful part, I think, of the passage. Because the will of God is not a mystery. It's not something that we have to go and and, and solve a riddle. It's not esoteric. It's not enigmatic. It has not been hidden from us, and we have to kind of try to uncover for ourselves... The will of God is not something that we have to pursue by extraordinary means. In fact, the word knowledge here, you see in verse 9, that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will, is a key word for the book of Colossians. Now, it would not be developed until much later, probably in the middle of the second century, but the word knowledge here points to a premature form of a religious movement known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which again means knowledge. And it was a philosophical worldview that had infiltrated Christianity and Judaism and even the pagan religions of the day. Gnosticism suggests that the right, that right knowledge is necessary for salvation. So in order to be saved, you had to have the right knowledge. Now in the, Christ, in the Christian form, put Christians in air quotes there, in the Christian form, Gnostics asserted that Jesus was sent from the highest and greatest spiritual being to bring secret knowledge for his followers that would allow them to escape the tyrannical and oppressive rule of the Old Testament creator God. Now, again, I don't want to get into this too much, but they viewed the Old Testament as being being inferior, that there was a, a, a God, a deity, who had somehow messed up the whole cosmic system, 
and he was, by his tyrannical rule and oppressive rule, kind of bringing people down and holding people away from salvation, keeping them in bondage. And what the God who was far higher than this Old Testament God did was he sent Jesus to kind of bypass that creator God and bring a special knowledge to his people. And in order to be saved then, people had to come into these secret teachings, this secret knowledge of salvation. That when Jesus came, he kind of gave a surface teaching. But those who really knew him got the secret teaching. That secret teaching was held hidden and captive and passed along to just an elite few. And if you came into that secret knowledge, then you could be saved. Now, while the false teachers in Colossae were not true Gnostics, they may have suggested that having the right knowledge was necessary for salvation, that they were the ones to have the right knowledge, that their knowledge, their secret knowledge would bring true spiritual fullness. And in that spiritual fullness, people could experience fulfillment, not gained through the gospel. So Paul uses the key word here, this word knowledge, no access, epigenosis, the, the superior knowledge, the, the knowledge of God. He uses that word specifically here to show them that God's knowledge, that the knowledge that God had revealed in His word was sufficient to bring fullness and fulfillment. So Paul prays here that the church would come to know God's will as God had revealed it in His Word. And again, how do we come into the knowledge of God? How do we come to know God's will? Well, it's through His revealed words, through the Scriptures. God has made clear to us what He wants us to be and to do. He has revealed His will to us. He has revealed His desires for us. He has revealed His expectations for us. He has revealed His purposes for us in the Bible. The entire Bible, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, is God's revelation to us. And He lays out quite clearly in the pages of this ancient book what He desires for us to think and to speak and to do. Consider just, for example, two very explicit examples. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 For this is the will of God. I mean, crystal clear. You see that? This is the will of God. How many people go hunting for the will of God, trying to discern the will of God? God makes it quite clear right here in this verse. One thing that He would desire us to think and to speak and to do. This is the will of God, your sanctification. God's will for your life is to be sanctified, is to be made more and more holy. And he relates that here in a specific way that you abstain from sexual immorality. So it is God's will for his people to be holy. And one way that we see that holiness manifested in us is when we abstain from sexual immorality. Also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 18, Paul writes, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is what God desires you to do. God desires you to rejoice always. He desires you to pray without ceasing. He desires you to give thanks in all circumstances. So those are just two explicit examples. And you could go through and do a word study on the will of God in the Scriptures and you can find a lot of different things in there. I've left a lot out. But the point I want to make here is that God's will is not secret. He has made it plain for you and for me. He has revealed it to us in His Word. Therefore, knowing the Word of God gives us the knowledge of His will. We should make every effort to know well the Word of God. Why? So that we will know the will of God. 
So Paul here is praying that the Colossians would fully know the will of God that he has revealed to them in his word. Now, because the will of God reveals the mind of God, we cannot discern the will of God by natural means. We can read the Bible and there are things we can glean from it and and learn and study. There are a lot of non-Christians that do that. But for the believer, we can't gain the full sense of what God would have for us unless we have supernatural means. Unless we have spiritual means, spiritual eyes to see. So God has given to us the Holy Spirit to help us understand His will. And I think that's what Paul means there at the end of verse 10 when he says, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, may you be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, with spiritual understanding, with spiritual discernment. In fact, we might even translate that phrase by the wisdom and understanding that comes through the Holy Spirit. Jesus had promised his disciples after he, that after he ascended into heaven, that the Holy Spirit would come. And what would be the purpose of the Holy Spirit? Well, the Spirit would remind them of his teachings to them, and he would guide them into all truth. So John fourteen twenty six. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit is a teacher. He illuminates to us what Jesus said to his disciples during his earthly ministry. In John 16, 13 and 14, Jesus also says that when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak in his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So our human mind that is tainted by sinfulness, that is limited by its creatureliness, that we are finite, our minds are finite, our ability to see and to reason and understand are finite, our human minds cannot comprehend the spiritual truth that comes from God unless God gives to us the means to understand. And again, he has done that through the Holy Spirit. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, Paul writes, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of, God, of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to discern them because they are spiritually discerned. Quoting from Isaiah, For who has understood the mind of the Lord as so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And we need the Holy Spirit to illuminate for us the Word of God so that we will understand the will of God, what it is that God desires of us. So as in Paul's prayer here, he is praying that the Holy Spirit will bring the Colossians the wisdom and understanding necessary to discern the will of God. So here Paul prays his prayer request. He makes this request known to God that the Colossians will be filled with the knowledge of the will of God and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The full knowledge of God's will then should be their Christian, holy aspiration. And so it should be for us as well. We should aspire 
to know the will of God. Our ambition should be to know what God requires of us. But to what purpose? Why should we be filled with the knowledge of God's will? Well, that gets us to the second part of this prayer, and that's the purpose. The purpose for knowing God's will, and that is to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, as he says in verse 10. The reason why Paul prayed for the Colossians to be filled with the knowledge of God's will is so that they they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Let me break that phrase down a little bit. First, the word walk is a Hebrew metaphor for our lifestyle, for the pattern of our behavior or our conduct. So our walk is how we live, and it especially refers to how we live before God. And how are we to live before God? By doing His will. So our walk points us consistently to do the will of God. If we're going to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, ultimately, we need to know what God requires of us, being filled with the knowledge of His will. Once we know the will of God, then we are able to do the will of God. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Why? that we may do all the words of this law. Now, speaking to Israel in the Old Testament, God gave his law to his people. He revealed his law to his people because that was the way God communicated his will to them. That's what he wanted them to do. It's how he wanted them to live. So also God has given to us his word, has made it very clear, revealed it to us, so that we can walk in that word, so that we can do the things that are written in his word. Wayne Grudem, who's a theologian, has written that those things that God has revealed are given for the purpose of obeying his will. So this is our walk, the manner of our life, the habits of our life, our behavior, our patterns of conduct, our lifestyle should be incorporating and doing the will of God. Paul even goes further to acknowledge what this walk looks like when he says that this walk is in a manner worthy of the Lord. The word Lord points us to the Lord Jesus Christ back in chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus is Lord over all. As his followers, we respond to the gospel. And when we respond to the gospel, what we are doing ultimately is submitting ourselves to the lordship of Christ. We acclaim that Jesus is Lord. It was the early baptismal confession. It's what got Christians persecuted because as required the Christians to go to the local temple, the pagan temples, and offer a sacrifice, they were to say, they were sacrificing to Caesar, they were to say, Caesar is Lord. But Christians could not in good conscience do that, and so when they went to the pagan temples and they refused to give the sacrifice, instead of saying Caesar is Lord, they said Jesus is Lord, and shortly after that, persecution ensued. Many of them lost their lives. Because when we come to Christ in the gospel, we submit ourselves to him so that he is Lord. Submission to his lordship means that we will obey him and do his will no matter what. The word worthy is an older word. It's an older way of saying comparable to or corresponding to. So we are to walk in a manner comparable to Christ or corresponding to Christ. And how did Jesus walk? Well, he sought to know and to do the will of God, right? As he says in John 6:38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, 
but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus provides for us an example of how we should live before the Lord. Jesus sought the will of God. Jesus did the will of God with regard to every aspect of his life. And of course, most fully and ultimately in his going to the cross as a sacrifice for sin. So our walk, our conduct, our our pattern of life, our lifestyle should reflect then the walk of Christ. We should emulate in our life an unyielding effort to do the will of God. And Paul here is calling upon the Colossians to to imitate the walk of Christ, again, who did the will of God in everything. Why is it important to do the will of God? Well, Paul again elaborates further as he continues He says that to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord is fully pleasing to him. So why is it important to do the will of God? Well, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord is pleasing, fully pleasing to God. Doing the will of God is pleasing to God. God delights to see his will accomplished. Because, again, his will conveys his desires and his expectations and his purposes. Think, for example, about creation. Remember the story of creation? When God created the heavens and the earth, day by day, what does he say after he's done creating? It is good, right? So God creates. That is his will. It is his desire to bring the world into existence. And when he does it, when he does each aspect of it, he pauses to say it is good. God is pleased to see his work accomplished, his will done. On the very last day of creation, on the sixth day of creation, After everything was made, God stepped back and surveyed the entire creation that he made. And what did he say? It is very good. As the word very, he is totally, thoroughly, completely pleased. So God does his work of creation. He brings brings his will to pass, manifests it, and then he delights in it. God delights in seeing his will accomplished. And so also God delights to see us doing his will. Because he has saved us for himself, then we ought to strive to please God. We know that God is pleased because his word tells us that when we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, it is fully pleasing to him. How is it pleasing to him? Well, we continue on in verse 10, where Paul says that as we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, as we are fully pleasing to him, we bear fruit in every good work. So in doing the will of God, we bear much fruit to the glory of God. Jesus said this himself in John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. It says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch bears fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So Jesus is establishing here this principle that our life, our vitality, our usefulness to God comes in being joined, united with Christ. That as we remain in Christ and Christ remains in us, He produces fruit in us. And not just fruit, Jesus says, much fruit. Then Jesus goes on in a few verses later in verse 8, He says, By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So God is pleased. He is glorified. He delights in the fact that we produce much fruit, that we bear much fruit. So doing the will of God bears much fruit for God. God has ordained that principle. We bear fruit in doing the will of God. 
So God's aim for us is to bear much fruit, and it is in the bearing of much, of much fruit that we bring Him glory. In doing the will of God, too, we also see that not only are we fully pleasing to Him by bearing fruit, but we are also fully pleasing to Him because we increase in the knowledge of God. In doing the will of God, we increase in our knowledge of God. Now, again, God, here's a key word of knowledge. God desires to be known. He has revealed Himself so that He can be known. The word know or knowledge in the Bible oftentimes points to a relationship. So a husband knows his wife indicates that there's a relationship between husband and wife. To know God means that we walk in relationship with Him, that we gain the knowledge of God by walking in relationship with Him. And God delights in the fact that we come to know Him more and more. So in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, God says this, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices love and just steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So God says, let our boast not be in our might or our riches or our power or our glory or our wisdom, but let our boast Let our pride, let our satisfaction be in the fact that we know God. And God delights that we know Him. So as we do the will of God, we are walking with God. We are growing in our knowledge of God. We come to know Him more and more. Our increased knowledge of God then furthers our ability to delight in Him and fellowship with Him. Don't you want to please God? I mean, that's the ultimate aim for us, right? I want to please God. Well, how do I please God? Go back to His Word. Find out what it is he desires me to do. One, to to do his will. How do I find his will? Again, go back to the word. It exposes God's will for us. We walk in his will. We increase in the knowledge of God and God is pleased. So Paul prays here that the Colossians might know God's will. Why? So they can do God's will and walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. By doing the will of God, they will please God in every respect They will bear much fruit to the glory of God, and they will increase in their knowledge of God. Amen. Hallelujah, right? Awesome. But how are we going to do that? How are we going to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? How can we possibly do the... I mean, it's God's will. We're human. How are we going to do it? Well, the next part of the prayer. Verse 11, God gives us the means for doing His will. What are the means for doing His will? It's His power. The means for doing God's will is the power of God. We are only able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord when God strengthens us with His power. We need spiritual power to do the will of God. Well, why do we need God's power? Well, because God's will is a spiritual work. Spiritual work requires spiritual power. God's will cannot be accomplished simply by ordinary means. We cannot walk in a manner worthy of the Lord unless we have spiritual power. Again, think about walking in a manner worthy of the Lord comparable to the way Christ walked. How many of us can walk like Jesus did? Right? It's impossible. We can't walk in His way. We cannot walk in a manner worthy of the Lord because Jesus' walk was so utterly perfect. We need supernatural power 
to do the work that He did, to accomplish God's will as He did, to walk as He did. We need spiritual power to do the will of God. Furthermore, we are weak. We are finite. We are sinful. That's why none of us can do God's will apart from God's power. We're sinful people. We don't desire it. We're incapable of it. We are limited. We are created. We lack the capacity in ourselves to do the work of God. So we need supernatural power from outside of ourselves to get the job done. And that's why Paul prays in verse 11 that the Colossians will be strengthened with all spiritual power. They need all power to do the will of God. Now, where does that power come from? Well, it comes from the omnipotent God. That phrase there, all power, points to God's omnipotence. In fact, that's what omnipotence means. All power. So all power belongs to who? Belongs to God. We say that God is omnipotent. All power belongs to Him. Where are we going to get the all power that we need to do God's will? From God Himself. In fact, Paul makes this even clear, clearer when he says, according to His glorious might. Paul says that this power that we need to do His will comes from God Himself, from the might of His glory. So again, how does God supply us with spiritual power? Through the Holy Spirit, right? Zechariah 4.6, I think we sang it last week, right? Not by might. I think what Zechariah means there is or God speaking through the prophet. Not by human might, not by human power, but by my Spirit who supplies the necessary power, the spiritual power. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, again, Jesus is about to go to heaven and He tells His disciples that you'll receive power when what happens? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So throughout the New Testament, we see this association between the Holy Spirit and the power of God. So both in our lives individually, in your life individually, and in our life together corporately in the church, the presence of the Holy Spirit manifests God's power to do God's will. Now, through the agency of the Holy Spirit, God has given us the power to do His will. And that power is necessary in all circumstances, again, because all spiritual work requires spiritual power. And that power is even more essential as we face adversity. So if you look back again in verse 11, he prays, May you be strengthened with all spiritual power, or with all power according to his glorious might. Why? For all endurance and patience. Adversity is a powerful deterrent to doing God's will. How many times have you used the circumstances of your life as an excuse not to do the will of God? God, I can't because this situation is too difficult, this person is too difficult, I don't have the resource, whatever. We make excuses not to do God's will because of adversity. But we're told in Scripture that believers must endure hardship. And the Colossians, no doubt, first century Christians, faced hardship. Whether it was the hardship of persecution or the hardship faced by these false teachers coming in and and perverting the gospel of Christ, Paul says here that God's power is given to them to help them endure and to be patient through this adversity. God's power is given for perseverance to navigate the long, hard slog that we will inevitably face as disciples of Jesus. We will need God's power, not in a certain circumstance, not for a moment, not for a situation, but every single day that we live upon this earth. We are called to persevere. 
We are called to, to stay faithful to the will of God, and God supplies us with that power through the Holy Spirit so that we might persevere. And notice that Paul says here, not just for perseverance, sometimes we think of perseverance, perseverance as just you know, biting your upper lip and sucking it up and just making it through, but Paul even adds here the phrase, with joy. He calls us to do the will of God with joy, and the Spirit is given to us to have joy even in the midst of trials. The power of the Spirit supplies us with joy because we rest our hope and our trust in God who has given us an eternal promise. So the power of God actively working to help us do the will of God allows us to do His will with joy. Be joyful as you do God's will. His Spirit gives us the power to be joyful in the midst of adversity. So Paul here acknowledges that the Colossians need God's power to do God's will. And in essence, he, he's almost implicit. It's almost like the second prayer request here. The, prayer, the main prayer request is the knowledge of God's will, but in the ESV Bible that I'm using, the translation kind of makes verse 11 look like it's a second request. It's actually tied into the main request. But it's almost like it's another prayer that Paul is making for the church. I'm praying that you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit will be at work in you to give you the power that you need to do the will of God through adversity, with endurance, with patience, and with joy. Now, as he wraps up this prayer, verses 12 through 14, he also addresses the attitude for doing God's will. The attitude. And what is the attitude? Attitude of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving specifically for the gospel. I think this is so neat how Paul is bookending his prayer. Remember that he opened the prayer by giving thanks to God for the faith, love, and hope of the Colossian believers through the gospel at work in them. Well, now at the end of the prayer, he encourages the Colossians to give thanks as they are walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. As we've said so many times before, thanksgiving is, is the heart's response to the grace of God. Paul acknowledged already that the grace of God was manifested in the, in the Colossian church in chapter 1, verse 2. Grace to you. God's grace is present and it is abounding and is being manifested in your midst. He now exhorts them to recognize it for themselves, especially as they consider what God has done for them and the resources that he has given to them to know and to do his will. Now, what is the basis for their thanksgiving? He says, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. So the basis of the thanksgiving that they give is the work of God's grace. It's the chief work of God's grace. It's the gospel. Notice that the Colossians are to give thanks to the Father, right? The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 3, who is now our Father, chapter 1, verse 2, through Christ. God has become our Father in the Gospel. And because of His role as Father, He has also qualified them and us to share in the inheritance of the saints. Do you see that in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. So the gospel promises the people of God an inheritance. 
that inheritance there is simply the extraordinary blessing that God has reserved for his people to enjoy for all eternity. I could do a whole sermon on that. I cut out a lot. So there's a whole, whole sermon on the inheritance, right? But notice here that Paul says that it's the Father who qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints. There's nothing that they could do on their own, in their own power, to apprehend it for themselves. God did it all. He took the initiative. He made the sacrifice. He qualified you so that you could ultimately receive the glorious inheritance that God has reserved for you. It is all of God. Paul acknowledges that here, that the Father has qualified you. And if the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints, then you should give thanks to Him. As He prays for them to know God's will, He encourages them as you're seeking to know God's will, as you seek to do God's will, as you're receiving the God's power through the Holy Spirit, thank God for the gospel that makes all of this possible. And then he elaborates on that even further in verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What a brief but illustrative summary of the gospel. Before God qualified to receive his inheritance, Paul says we lived in the domain of darkness. The darkness there captures the essence of our dwelling without God. Under the power of Satan and the demonic host, mired in our own sinfulness and rebellion, awaiting the terrible judgment of God. It's not like we were a victim of circumstance. We deserve this. This was our fate. This was our destiny because we absolutely deserved it because of our sin. But God... But God, God graciously and powerfully intervened in our circumstances. Paul says here, this is a very powerful and picturesque word, He delivered us from the domain of darkness. I get that, that picture, right? Again, kind of using this bubble illustration. We're over here living in this bubble of darkness. Enslaved, sinful, awaiting God's judgment. And God like reached His hand right into there and plucked us out and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. He broke the power of every enemy that had a grip on us. He pulled us out of that domain. He saved us from the fury of His judgment. And He transferred, his, he transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, a kingdom characterized by righteousness and joy and peace and beauty and glory and grace. All that was prophesied in Isaiah 9-6. Right? God did that for us through His Son. We have redemption from our bondage and we have forgiveness of sins through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and through His victorious resurrection from the dead. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord, right? That's the Gospel. Because God did it all by Himself, because we are so undeserving, and because it was all of grace, Paul says that we ought to live in a manner worthy of the Lord by giving thanks to God our Father. We must be a thankful people, but we will only be thankful when we are meditating on the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, having worked through the prayer, let me make a few, and yes, they're brief, points of application. And again, like I did last week, I want to think from the perspective of the Colossians, how, they, how we read this letter as they would have read it, and to think about it from Paul's perspective as we read it from, from his eyes as he's writing it. 
So first, from the Colossians' perspective, what should we take away as we read Paul's prayer as if it were for us? Number one, we should seek to know God's will. We should seek to know God's will. If we gain our understanding of God's will through the Scriptures, then we must remain immersed in the Scriptures. Read your Bible. Study your Bible. Come to church on Sunday to hear the Scriptures taught. Get into one of the many studies that we offer to learn more about the Bible. And as you do, you will come to understand more and more the will of God. In the process of of abiding in God's Word, as you're reading the Scriptures, as you're studying the Scriptures, as you're hearing it on Sundays, ask yourself the question, what does this passage tell me about God's will? What does this passage ask me to do or to obey or to submit to in order to honor God? So we should seek to know God's will. Number two, we should seek to do God's will. So once you take those things, once you understand what it is God would have you to do, think of practical ways to do them. And then do them. Right? Number three, we should, be, we should seek to be strengthened with God's power. If we need God's power, pray for God's power. Pray that God would supply you His power through the Holy Spirit to enable you to do His will. Number four, we should give thanks to God for the grace that He has shown to us in the gospel. So if we need, if our thankfulness comes from the gospel, let's think more about the gospel. Let's meditate on the gospel. That will help us. Once you get into this, I mean, were you thanking God when we read 13 and 14 and started talking about it? I mean, God, thank you for that. That's what, that's what meditating on the gospel does. Now last week I encouraged you to consider a book, What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert. I actually ordered a few extra copies this week, so I've got two left. If you would like a book, you can have it. I'll give it to you for free, my gift to you. If you promise to read it, you can get catch me at the back door before you leave. I'll be happy. It's very short, just a, a brief meditation on what the gospel is that might help you if you're struggling with apprehending and appreciating what the gospel is. So I'm happy to give this to you. All right, let's think about this now from Paul's perspective. What should we take away from this letter as we see it through Paul's eyes as Paul is writing? just one thing we should pray for others in the body of christ that they would have a knowledge of god's will that they would walk in a manner worthy of the lord that they would be strengthened by god's power through the holy spirit and that they would be thankful as they meditate on the gospel okay so basically you use verses 9 through 14 as a prayer that you yourself can pray just pretend like you're the apostle paul and just pray these things for brothers and sisters. So last week I encouraged you. I hope you did this. I got texts and messages this week from people who did it and were certainly encouraged. And I really appreciate that. That's awesome. Praise God. He's doing something here. And through the prayers of his people. So last week if you didn't do it, you didn't pick up a copy of the church membership list, there are extra copies out there. Grab one this morning. And this week I want you to continue praying those things for each member of the church. But now I want you to add verses 9 through 14. Pray that, you know, that Adam Braun would be filled with a knowledge of God's will. That he would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That he would be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might. And that he would be thankful in the process. And do that for every member of the church and how faith-building and unifying that process would be. First John 5.14 says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, toward God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And I believe this is a prayer that God would love to answer in our lives, individually and also in our church. So as we consider this text, may we see 
holy aspirations for our lives and for this church. And may God give us the grace to apprehend these aspirations so that they might become a living reality in us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage once again, Lord. And we do pray this morning that you would give to us the full knowledge of your will. God, we're so thankful you've given to us your word so that we can know what your will is. We don't have to go digging for it or or trying to uncover it, Lord, or or, or go and and find it in, in esoteric ways. But, Lord, you've given to us your will clearly revealed in your word. So if we pray this morning, you give us knowledge and not just knowledge, but full knowledge so that it is it is all-consuming to us, Lord, so that we're doing it in every way, so that it's touching every aspect of our lives. Lord, we want to walk in a manner worthy. So we pray you'd help us to do that, that by knowing the will of God, that we would be, in, that we would be able to go and to do what you've called us to do. We pray you would strengthen us, Lord, with your Spirit, your Holy Spirit, who empowers us to do a spiritual work. We confess, Lord, we can't do this work on our own. So I pray, Lord, you'd give to us more and more of your Holy Spirit, Lord, to be able to do the very things that you have called us to do. And Father, through it all, I pray you'd help us to be thankful this week. Help us, Lord, to meditate upon what you have done for us. That we would see the glory and the beauty of your grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to be thankful. God, you have delivered us from the domain of darkness. You have transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom we have redemption in the forgiveness of sins. We pray, Lord, that these things would be reality in us. We give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.